Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. After three elections in less than a year, it seems like Israel is finally about to have a new government. This week, Prime Minister Netanyahu and Benny Gantz, the leader of the Blue and White Party, finalized and announced the coalition agreement uniting their factions and creating the bulk of the new government. They are expected to be joined in the coming days by the Haredi parties and a couple of other small factions, and then the new government can be sworn in. By design, according to the coalition agreement, it will only last for a maximum of three years, with Netanyahu serving as prime minister for the first year and a half and Benny Gantz taking over for the rest. There are many controversial elements to the agreement, and here to walk us through them is Tal Schneider, political and diplomatic correspondent at Globes, Israel's leading financial newspaper. Tal, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, here's where I want to begin. This government is being billed as a national unity government to address the extraordinary threat from the coronavirus. How seriously do you take that, you know, kind of marketing pitch? Do you think that the virus really was foremost in the minds of Prime Minister Netanyahu and Gantz when they made their agreement? Um, I think as per the decision to enter uh, this negotiation, definitely, if you look back a month ago, we have the expectations of many deaths and deaths and, and the expectations of severe economic downturn. It definitely was in the background of their mind. But if you look at the text of the agreement, obviously, it's not there. I mean, the entire text deals with the stance and the position of both uh, Netanyahu and Benny Gantz, and it doesn't deal with any substance at all except for two issues, the possible annexation, or as they call it, sovereignty uh, implementation, and the, the draft bill. So those two items are of a content, and the rest of the agreement, 14 pages of a very legalized uh, wording, is about the positions, the personal positions of the two you know, prime minister and prime minister in waiting. So I, I think that those two things and then one more thing, right, the two political issues and then the personal issue, I think that those maybe we can talk about them as like the three biggest hot button issues of the campaign. And I actually want to go now one by one through those issues and hear from you, Tal, about how they're going to now be resolved. So let's start with one that has been almost forgotten, even though it played a huge role in the drama that led to these repeat elections. Uh, And that's Haredi service in the Israeli army. So who won that issue? Um, Is there going to be any expansion of the draft for Haredi men? Well, it's a bit of a complicated question and answer. There supposedly there is a draft, but what they did in the agreement, they gave um, the ultra-orthodox parties their wish, and the wish was that you set the goals for this draft in a government resolution. You do not uh, set the goals for the draft in a bill, which means actually it's not a transparent move. It's more of a political compromise. And for us, Israeli, what it really means, it means that the draft will be 
kind of, you know, political game. It won't be a, a real thing. It's not, you know, it's not the real deal. It's just, you know, something they put in writing. I think when you read the agreement, it's a win for the ultra-Orthodox parties in Israel with respect to the draft bill. And so just to be sure I, I understand what you're saying, because the draft bill is going to be decided in the cabinet, um, that is to say, like, by the government rather than by a, a vote in the Knesset, it enables Prime Minister Netanyahu to put the issue in his pocket a little bit and really not have to deal with it in the same kind of serious way that it would if there were a whole you know floor debate and vote over it in the parliament. Is that right? Um, almost. There is a draft bill, but... Um, the goals, when I mean the goals, it's the, the, I mean how many people are going to be drafted every year from the ultra-Orthodox ultra community. This number is going to be set by the government and not in a bill, which means it's not a transparent, uh, it's not a transparent process. We will probably, they will tell how much, what is the number, but it's really defined. And you can, you can change that, you know, every month. You can say it to begin with uh, 3,000 and then you can lower it down and nobody will. It's not, it's not really a process of drafting. It's more a process of wording something in order to satisfy somebody if you get me. I was going to ask you if that means if you thought that this problem was going to go away or whether you thought that other parties would campaign on it in future elections, although the future elections are a little bit further of a timeline than we've gotten used to over the past uh, year. I wouldn't say that. I don't know. We can't know for sure that the future elections are uh, far away uh, because obviously there is uh, some other issues in this agreement which if, if the Supreme Court rules against Netanyahu, you know, next month, they both parties agreed to go for a fourth election. It's actually in the agreement, a fourth possible mm -hmm. election. Mm -hmm. But going back into the draft, I think it's a big issue. I think obviously the opposition parties will, you know, come campaign on that. And, and to my opinion, they will also apply again to the Supreme Court. Uh, this is an ongoing thing for 20 years now with people that are saying we are being drafted to the military, whereas the government give a slack to people that are ultra-Orthodox and we cannot agree to that anymore. So obviously, it doesn't solve the problems, to my opinion. So this is an issue that we'll keep hearing about. Um, another issue that we'll probably keep hearing about, which was actually kind of the centerpiece of Blue and White's campaign, was a promise that they wouldn't support Benjamin Netanyahu for prime minister because of his indictment on three counts of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. Now, even more strongly than that, they vowed to unseat him. They said at one point, I think their slogan or, or one of their slogans was something like, Toda Bibi Anu Mamshichim Mikan, right? Thank you, Bibi. We'll take it from here. Now, obviously, Gantz has now put that commitment aside, but did he extract any concessions from Netanyahu to safeguard the integrity of the trial, which is supposed to begin, I think, next month? What does the new government mean for the prosecution of Benjamin Netanyahu? It means that Netanyahu can be prime minister while being prosecuted. And also, if he is convicted, then he can still be a prime minister until an appeal so actually, the agreement gives him, um, you know, at least three years to, to be in power. And, you know, it's even, uh, I would call it worse than that, because according to the agreement, if Netanyahu wants to return at the end, you know, let's say the government is now for three years, but Netanyahu wants to go back in for the last four to six months or whatever, you know, whatever timetable he chooses, then he goes right back in 
to finish is 18 months, right? It has, it gets 18 months, but it can do, it can split them. It can do one hmm. year now, but the six month later is really, really important because those six months later may be exactly on the time when he may be acquitted or convicted. And let's say he got convicted and he is on an appeal, then he can still serve as a prime minister, the outgoing prime minister, which means, let's say, the future elections, if we go through the same problems of, you know, not able to form a government and so on, so he can still be the, the interim outgoing prime minister for a long, long time, like we just have seen now for a year and a half, right? So the agreement actually gives him a lot. Um, and everything Gantz said in this past year was just thrown out and... I think this is a major crisis for Israeli who believed in him. You mm -hmm. know, a chief IDF yeah. in Israel, it's a position where people choose to believe a person like that because you, we put our kids in those hands of those people. So there is a special stand in Israel society for all of those former chief IDFs. And they're not, just, they're not supposed to be just regular politicians. I think what Gantz just did may have lost may have caused lots of israeli to lose lots of their faith in leaders and it will be how do you say that uh you know bad effect for many years wow okay that, that's a lot to think about there um <laughs> we all have kids in the military here right i mean if you are not ultra orthodox i think that the agreement provides for Gantz to be is it foreign minister for the next year and a half no, he will start as a defense minister oh, defense for 18 minister. months. And his, um, his, his deputy, Gabi Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi will also, be the foreign minister. also a former chief IDF, right. will be the foreign affairs minister. Yes, It's interesting because there, there could be, I'm doing some quick math in my head, there could be nearly a million, upwards of a million of Israelis who may have voted for Gantz to be prime minister. And now after all of this, based on what you just said, Tal, they might be, you know, upset at the idea of him even serving as defense minister. So it's a 1 million and 100,000, something like that, a little bit right. more than that, three times, right? For three times. Uh, so we had three cycles of election. And yes, he's going to be the defense minister, but I have to tell you some polling uh, that has been made in the last two weeks or three weeks show that from these one million people, you know, probably half of them, at least half of them, are supporting his entry into government. So, oh, but this, this is just polling, right? We mm -hmm. don't know. Right. Uh, if we have fourth election, I will tell you how, what will be num his numbers. <laughs> okay, so the last hot button issue I want to come to. Not is... laughing here. <laughs> <laughs> no one's laughing. Um, the last hot button issue I want to come to is probably the one that has gotten the most attention among American Jews, and that is the proposal to annex large swaths of the West Bank, uh, the territory long reserved, reserved in a certain sense for a future Palestinian state. This kind of move didn't really seem likely even just a few years ago. And now it has the endorsement of the president of the United States, and it's actually baked into this coalition agreement that, that Netanyahu and Gantz agreed that they're going to bring it to a vote in the Knesset in the next few months. Is this really going to happen? And if it does, what does it mean for the next stage of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? What does it mean for Israeli-Jordanian peace, Israeli-Egyptian peace, not to mention Israel's standing in Europe and here in the United States? So what Gantz and Ashkenazi actually did, they, they wrote into the agreement that it may be put forward by the, the Netanyahu 
And according to the very complicated wording out there, it seems as if they're not going to support it, but mm. they agree to it because they know Netanyahu has a majority. So Netanyahu has a majority to put that forward without their support in, on, on bills. So the bills and the legislation that is going to support this kind of move may, may have a 61, 62, maybe 64 out of the Israeli Knesset, but it will not have the 74 or 78 of this coalition. Hmm. We don't know that yet, I have to tell you. You're saying because someone like Israel Beitenu, Vigdor Lieberman's party, which is going to be in the opposition, is actually a right-wing party, and so they would support this even as members of the government did not. Exactly. Whereas, on the other hand, Gantz and Ashkenazi did not feel comfortable with that clause and made it, uh, they, they didn't really made it clear, but it, it's in between the lines, you can read that they say that they need an international support and they want to hear the, the Jordanian king and so on. But they know that if they don't have a veto power on that decision, it will be put forward. The reason for that, obviously, is the timetable. Netanyahu wants to promote that before November. It's really important to him for this to happen even during maybe, um, you know, he doesn't want it to be the October surprise for the U.S. election. He wants it to be done by August or by mm -hmm. early September, I suppose. Mm -hmm. He's looking very tightly at the American um, schedule and he realizes that maybe, maybe, we don't know, but maybe Trump is not going to be the next uh, president. So, so Biden will definitely not support that. And he's trying to take advantage of this timetable right now. And, you know, also, I have to tell you this, the entire world community is really busy this day. We're saving their own um, GDP and their unemployment and their health issues. Nobody's really looking to what's going on here. This is kind of a good time and i'm saying it with quote unquote it's a good time to to do something controversial no exactly to just go ahead and do something and when you know the entire world is not really watching that well they say they're watching but nobody it's not going to hit the the top of the news cycle you agree with me on that so you know, for a long time, the linchpin of Israel's security has been that it doesn't have to worry about so much about its border with Jordan, right? That that Israel and Jordan, they're not best friends, but, you know, that whole, you know, large swath all up and down Israel's eastern border is, you know, fairly secure. Maybe that and the Egyptian peace deal together means that Israel is in a radically different place today than it was for the first you know, 30 years, 40 years of its of its existence. Would that all be in jeopardy if Israel were to make this move, even if Egypt and Jordan are worrying more about their own GDPs than they are about the plight of the Palestinians? Well, the Jordanian kid has said uh, on the record in an interview, I think with an American uh, news outlet, he has said that the agreement will be annulled if Israel uh, annexed the Jordan Valley. Now, if you ask me if he will go ahead and do that, I really don't know. Mm. I, think, um, I think he might. Uh, we've seen some signs in the last year for the Jordanian king to be upset about many of the things that are being you know, done here, um, including some land, land swap that was uh, canceled on his behalf. I mean, not canceled. I mean, he took the rights back according to the peace agreement that was signed in 1994 which was, you know, he, he had the right to do it. 
but it was a big sign for the Israeli, but um, it feels here as if the Israeli current government and the Netanyahu for 11 years now, less, he's less concerned about his position in, in the international community and, it, and he's trusting his own ability to have the American backing and continue maybe the you know, Indian backing and Japan, Japanese backing and continue with whatever he wants to do. And he has you know, a proof along the years that nobody in Europe, I think in Europe they only make threats and they make announcements, but no other than that. And he, mm-hmm. he's feeling free to just proceed. And I have to tell you also this, he has a huge, huge uh, political pressure from the right wing in Israel. And you know, the right wing here is in power for many years. So they're, they're, they put the pressure and the pressure is working. So, okay. So let me ask you this. So if a Martian were to land on on Earth and someone hands you know him or her the results of the past three Israeli elections over this past year, let's assume the Martian had you know a degree in political science, they would look at the results and they would say, okay, one thing is clear to me. It doesn't really seem like anyone won these elections. And then, you know, now today we could turn to the Martian and say, okay, actually, based on those three hot button issues that we just talked about, the the Haredi draft, the personal prosecution of Prime Minister Netanyahu and annexation, we could say, actually, really, this guy, Prime Minister Netanyahu, won. Why does he always win? This has been going on for more than a decade now. Why does Bibi always win? He wins because he's very popular here and he has a great convincing power. And I think many of the Israeli do not believe in those um, allegations that were, that he was charged with. I mean, he's, um, uh, he's on trial for uh, taking bribery and obviously uh, innocent until proven guilty. But if you look at the core of whatever the Israeli are saying, specifically the right-wing Israeli, or maybe also religious Israeli, they think that the claims against him are false. And uh, if you talk to people, I mean, even ministers or people on the Knesset, they will tell you it's an uh, entire uh, <laughs> witch hunt. And I know you know the word for that. You know, you know it's, a, it's a familiar term. That's what they think. And they put their trust in him. Uh, and I, for according reading the agreement, it seems as if Benny Gantz also put the trust on him because Benny Gantz absolutely allow him to to bounce back as a prime minister. As I told you earlier, he may bounce back as a prime minister for the last months, for for example, and from there he will continue to be a prime minister as long as he is, even if he's losing election or even if, if you have more of half of the Israel, you do not trust him with the coalition agreement. I mean, his big achievement right now is dismantling blue and white. That's the big achievement. Yeah. So. yeah. Okay, so for our last question, I want to turn to something that's technical on its face, but I think it says something about the state of Israeli politics today, and I'm interested in your perspective. In the United States, our cabinet is fairly static, right? I remember the last time there was a new cabinet secretary position created here in the U.S. That was the Secretary of Homeland Security created right after 9-11. That brought the total number of secretaries up to 15. Secretaries in the U.S. government are called ministers in the Israeli government. And you reported this week that 
the new government is going to have as many as 36 ministers and another 16 deputy ministers. So that's 52 folks sort of comprising the equivalent of the U.S. cabinet in the Israeli cabinet. Even by Israeli standards, that's huge. I saw a report in the Times of Israel that the salaries and position perks, cars, drivers, offices, etc., uh, for all of those ministers could cost Israeli taxpayers as much as a billion shekels over three years. What does this unwieldy and expensive cabinet tell us about the state of Israeli politics? This is one of the very sad uh, component of this agreement, and it's actually hard to believe that Blue and White went with it. Um, the claim behind it was that if you get a large government, then it's a stable government. Uh, it's hard for me to agree to that because obviously it's not a stable government if you look at the wording of the agreement and also they, they set they decided, can you imagine an American president saying, instead of four years election, I'm going to go for three years election? I mean, why do you take from the, the hands of the people the right to have a four years of quiet government? They just decided they can play with those laws and basic laws as, you know, whatever they want to do it. We call them like Play-Doh, right? They just take it apart and build it and mix it every time they want to do it. I have to say... Netanyahu and Gantz are not the first to do it, but this time around, it feels as if they really uh, took it to the far end. And when you mentioned the 52 ministers, minister and deputy ministers, it's, uh, it's even more harder to grasp when they do it during such an economic downturn. And, and I, I'm sure, I don't know if you're following, but the American government, for example, is doing a major plans for bailout. And here, the bailout is nothing. They don't help businesses. Mm. Businesses has been closed for two months and, and the bailout is like, it's very, very low. And it's uh, probably the lowest around the world. They expect people to, you know, take their hands and pull their own money in order to get along after those really too hard uh, two months. And um, so I have no, no explanation for that other than really uh, chutzpah. Tal, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your insights. Sure. Thank you. Earlier this year, AJC launched a series of Arabic language videos titled An Al Yahud, or About the Jews. The animated short videos distributed on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter have reached tens of millions across the Arab world. In less than three months, the project's Arabic language Facebook page has over 150,000 followers, and its Twitter account has over 50,000. Viewers have tuned in from Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, Tunisia, the West Bank and Gaza, Jordan, and the United Arab Emirates. The first two videos focused on the origins and beliefs of the Jewish people and the history of Muslim-Jewish relations. This week, in time for Holocaust Remembrance, the third video was released explaining the Holocaust. Here to discuss this groundbreaking project is Ari Gordon, AJC Director of Muslim-Jewish Relations. Ari, welcome to the show. Hi, Manya. Thanks. Great to be with you. So, Ari, I want to repeat for listeners, this is a series of animated videos to explain Judaism for an Arabic language audience. Why animation? Why Arabic? Why is this a useful tool? Sure. The An Al Yahud series is aimed at Arabic-speaking audiences, 90% of which are living in Arab countries, 
And of the close to 400 million Arabic speakers in the world, um, most of them will never get the chance to meet a Jew, to hear directly Jewish voices about our own community. You know, at the turn of the 20th century, there were about a million Jews living in Arab lands. Now it's just a few thousand. Without getting into the politics of how we got there, we really are losing an opportunity to build bridges between our peoples and in that all important way that it happens when you can meet and know and talk to someone. However, now with the great tools of social media that Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube have allowed, we can actually connect with people who will never have the chance to meet a Jew directly and give them Anal Yahud about the Jews, a Jewish voice about Jews. And you ask, why animation? Well, I know that for some, it might seem as taking a very serious project a little too lightly. But the fact is, for those who don't know anything about Jews or may even have a negative narrative, we want to lower the bar for entry. We want to make it an easier way to engage, let down the guard, because we're trying to open people up to something they either don't know about or don't want to know about. And in that sense, if you see an animated video going through your media feed, you're more likely to click it for three minutes and watch and learn something. We're not creating National Geographic documentaries. Uh, if someone wants to sit down for an hour and get a deep dive about a subject, they've already bought in. We're trying to plant seeds for a paradigm shift that will be ongoing. And this is just the first touch point. It's an invitation to engage. So we should also clarify this is not Bugs Bunny, Roadrunner type of cartoons. I mean, we want to make sure that you know, people understand it's not that lighthearted. It is serious subject matter and treated seriously, but in a way that hooks the listener or the viewer in without requiring a lot of engagement. Is that, is that the right way to put it? Yeah, these, these are animated, but they're not cartoons. They are talking about serious subjects in a way that is engaging. It makes you want to watch more. The screen shifts from image to image as, you know, for example, the video about the history of Muslim-Jewish relations. We can talk about what's happening during the time of the Prophet Muhammad, and then in the next screen, uh, talk about the Middle Ages and then the modern period, tell good stories as well as negative stories, and keep it moving, and also take very serious subjects and allow them to be a little bit lighter and a little bit easier to engage. Well, certainly we'll provide a link to the videos in our show notes. Let's let listeners have a listen to a segment of this. The Holocaust targeted the Jews, but it serves as an important lesson for humanity about how easily demonization of a people can lead to their destruction. So what kind of feedback have you gotten from these videos? Well, uh, Manya, I would love to tell you that every comment in the comment sections of our Facebook and Twitter feeds was positive and said, you know, my eyes have been opened and I used to think this and now I'm a believer. 
Overnight but transformation. Overnight transformation <laughs> with a three-minute video. About Are you telling me that has not happened? That, in fact, has not been the case. Mm, okay. Um, you know, this is true in any area, political or unpolitical. You could be talking about peanut butter and you're going to get people saying um, just the worst horrible, most offensive things, um, let alone when you're talking about subjects that even though we're doing education can ring politically. Um, and there are certainly some negative comments. There are viewers who will post negative verses from their traditions. There are those who will say awful things about Israel or Zionism and uh, talking about the Holocaust and praising the work of Hitler. That's on the negative side. But the fact is there are also lots of positive points of engagement. And the three types that I have seen as I, as I go through and look at the comments in Arabic, one is people who are quoting from religious tradition, talking about how they honor the Hebrew Bible and the prophets and the Jews and how the Quran and their tradition tells them to do so. Another is people who are recalling memories of when Jews lived side by side as neighbors and they saw them in the marketplace, positive experiences. And others who maybe don't remember that, just talking about general human values. We are all humans and we embrace this. So we're seeing a lot of positive reaction. We don't expect this to do all the work. But like I said, we're planting seeds. We're building scaffolding to create an engaged community. Does most of the positive response come from allies who were already allies or are there new voices? Uh, are there eyes being opened, even if it's only a few? Yeah, I think it's hard to gauge from just a few comments where someone's starting point was and where they came from. I think as the series unfolds and we engage this community and have more back and forth in conversation, we'll be able to answer that question. There's no doubt in my mind that for some people, they've not met Jews. They are not experts in Judaism. What they know is likely from their tradition. So someone who is sharing a Quranic verse that says, God gave scriptures to all of us. We are all people of the book. We honor Moses and Abraham uh, and Jesus along with Muhammad. This is someone who hasn't said, you know, I've got a friend named Ari or Manya. They're saying, here's what I've been taught, but it's an opportunity to channel what I know. And because we're a Jewish partner who's reaching out to them, they're reaching back out and they're saying, yeah, I'm going to use what I have and tell you how I embrace this. Mm -hmm. And maybe not go to what their community culture has been talking about, especially related to politics, but they're going to take their tradition, take this outreach from a Jewish partner and build on that. Right, right. We're not seeing a partisan political war where the negative ones are making one political message and the positive ones are trying to undermine that message. Mm -hmm. There are political comments, but those who are engaging positively are doing it in the mode of interfaith understanding and embracing the humanity of all. So you said as this unfolds, how many videos can we expect to see or has that been determined yet? Every religious tradition is so rich that it's inexhaustible to talk about the topics. But one of the things that distinguishes this series, we didn't want this to just be talking about common culture, religion, prophets. This is not an education about Jewish religion. There's no doubt a need for that. There are some series out there that can talk about that. Perhaps that's one thing that will be in the works. But we wanted to talk about some of the tougher topics we wanted to talk about things that are live now, 
And so, sure, our first video was who are the Jews? And that's a broad picture of where we come from, who we are. The topic of Muslim-Jewish relations, slightly more edgy because there's positive and negative to talk about. The Holocaust, a harder discussion for some because of the way that that story has been told or not told in their countries. If we talk about history, we want it to be those areas which have relevance today. If we talk about Israel or Zionism, we want it to be educational, not propaganda, but we're genuinely trying to start a conversation about something that's difficult and hard. If we do talk about religion, those also should be areas which are those untouchable, more hot topics. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how did this all come about, this whole concept of short videos, quick bites, quick noshes, if you will. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, have we engaged with the Arabic-speaking community in other ways previously? Sure. So AJC, American Jewish Committee, has a long history of decades of engagement in the Arab world with political leaders, opinion leaders, journalists, religious leaders. My colleagues have been traveling to the United Arab Emirates, Jordan, Egypt, and many other places, again, building those relationships for years. And those have borne incredible fruit at the leadership level. This was an effort to reach grassroots, to meet people who are not going to be in the room when we take a diplomatic delegation to meet, who are not going to come to the United States to a Muslim-Jewish interfaith conference, who may not travel to Israel with us on Project Interchange. Mm -hmm. But we wanted to be able to reach them. And AJC has a history with this. We had a very active and successful website for a while called Asal al-Yahud, the roots of the Jews or origins of the Jews, which was more articles and essays about culture, about shared prophets, about shared history. And at the time where websites were the way that you engaged on the internet, that was the right mode of engagement. And for people who were looking to learn more, this was a way in Arabic to speak to people who wanted to know more about the Jews. In 2020, we can be much more interactive, much more quick on our feet. And we don't have to wait for people to come into our house. We can go into theirs and, as we said, make an invitation. Do you want to know this? Here's, yeah, as you said, a little niblet, a little nasharai. Um, (laughs) You know, we can talk. It's uh, Ramadan is starting tonight. We can say, these little sweet things (laughs) that would come across that you see it and it's three minutes, it's animated or it's six minutes or whatever it is. And if you want to know more, well, sure, we want you to know more, but, you know, this is your appetizer. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you about something that happened this week, actually, in Israel. Someone from the Arab party in the Knesset actually showed solidarity with the Jewish people and made some really extraordinary remarks about Holocaust remembrance. And we talk, you talk about AJC engaging on the leadership level How remarkable were these comments that were said on Tuesday? Or is that something that's been kind of unfolding over time because of this kind of engagement? Manya, that's a great question. I I was also really touched and looked into this when the MK from, uh, I believe it was the Islamic movement, Mansour Abbas, Mm -hmm. talked about on Yom HaShoah that for the first time he talked about how Holocaust denial is a betrayal of the values of truth and justice. It's a sin against the basic principles of Islam. He was not the first Arab member of Knesset 
to make comments about the Holocaust. He was the first from his party, the religious party, to do so. And so it's always remarkable. The narrative of the Holocaust has been incredibly overly politicized in a negative way, certainly among Palestinians and Arab Israelis, but in the Arab world more broadly. It's been told as a story that justifies an injustice. Mm -hmm. And for him to stand up and say, no, Holocaust denial is a sin. It's not that it's factually wrong, which he says it is, but it's a sin against our religion. Mm -hmm. That is a great statement. Mm -hmm. And I can't be sure, but something like that may be enabled by the historic mission of Muslims and Jews that American Jewish Committee, AJC, helped lead and organize with the Muslim World League just this past January at the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Mohammed Al-Isa, the Secretary General of the Muslim World League, as well as dignitaries from Egypt, Morocco, Lebanon, across Europe, the United States, and elsewhere. I was privileged to be a part of this mission as well with David Harris, Rabbi David Rosen, our President Harriet Schleifer, visited Auschwitz together and spent time in Warsaw. And he made statements about how the Holocaust was a sin against humanity, that the Jews were killed just because they were Jews, and that Muslims cannot have double standards in how we condemn these sins just because of who the perpetrators or the victims were. I can't be sure whether there's a direct connection between religious leaders standing up and saying, no more, Holocaust denial is wrong, but it certainly empowers voices like that to come forward. Yeah. Well, Ari, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this really remarkable project. I will say I was dubious when I heard of these animated videos. I I wasn't quite (laughs) sure what kind of impact they would have, but after watching them and certainly after talking to you, I get it now. And I I certainly uh, really admire this project. Oh, thanks, Manya. Well, we hope this is just the beginning of the story and that when we come back in five and 10 years, we'll see this as the opening of a historic paradigm shift for the Jewish-Arab relationship. Certainly hope so. Thank you, Ari. Bye-bye. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Sarah Tuttle Singer, the new media editor at The Times of Israel. Sarah, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat Table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? You know, it's interesting. Our Shabbat table is sometimes full to overflowing, whether we're with friends or with extended family. But because of COVID-19, we're sheltering at home. And so our Shabbat table is actually rather small these days. It's just me and my partner and sometimes my kids when they're not with their father. And it reminds me so much of what we've just been talking about at Passover, how we've come through this narrow straits of Mitzrayim, of the land of Egypt, and into the promised land, into fullness and fruition. And right now we are still very much in those narrow spaces, sheltering at home, trying to stay safe and keep others safe. But our contact with the with the world is limited. And, and so that's what's so special about this recording right now. We've sort of expanded our Shabbat table by being with all of you and with listeners, but at home it's rather small. But through it all, and this is something that we talk about at the table, is the work of Viktor Frankl, a psychiatrist who survived the concentration camps and lived through the worst atrocities of the Holocaust. And while he was there, he noticed that the inmates who were more likely to survive and then thrive after liberation 
were the people who found meaning and purpose in their daily lives and even in all the horror and the suffering. And so he wrote a book about this, Man's Search for Meaning. And so I've been rereading it and it's something that's moved me incredibly. And it's made me look for ways to find meaning and purpose and reach out to people, build connections where possible, look for the little miracles, whether it's new flowers that have cropped up in the garden or the fact that for the first time in a long time, I get to spend more time with my kids. Some of it isn't easy. Some of it is you know, grueling and exhausting. And it turns out I'm a terrible homeschooling mother, but we have this time together. And what's nice about that is I also look back on their early days as babies and how much I missed because I was so tired and so ready for it to just be over for that phase to just pass already. And I feel like I get a do-over. And so that's one of the meaningful things that I have found in all of this. And this is something that I'm talking about at our small and narrow Shabbat table. And hopefully one day when we come out of these narrow straits and when life comes back to its newish normal and we can be together again and hug each other and, and sit at bigger tables with extended family and friends, these things won't be forgotten. These lessons that we're learning as we go along will still be with us. And the more we continue to look for ways to make the time meaningful and purposeful, I think the better off we will be. If we can find a way to look for a greater meaning through it all, I have hope both in my own little life and for the life of all people throughout the world. Well, Amen to that. Manya, what about you? What are you guys going to be talking about at the Brashir Pashman Shabbat table? Well, Sarah, I can definitely relate to your feeling of failing in the homeschooling arena, that's for sure. But during our podcast, Passover Hiatus, and about 20 months after my own personal hiatus, I stepped back into the newspaper world, but this time onto the op-ed pages. It was a first for me. I do not take many positions publicly, and especially not on the other side of the firewall that traditionally separates the newsroom from the opinion shapers. But there are some topics I do feel strongly enough about, and topics that are personal. And given this job and the circumstances we find ourselves in, it was time to issue a warning rather than wait for something to happen and report it. So, over the Passover holiday, the Times of Israel published my cautionary column about the history of anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories tied to plagues. What can Jews expect amid this pandemic, and when can we expect it? Ever since then, I've been keeping tabs on what's popping up on social media or flagged by watchdog groups, and finding that, unfortunately, history is indeed repeating itself. This week, the annual report on anti-Semitism worldwide by the Cantor Center at Tel Aviv University revealed a resurgence of blood libel. Far-right politicians, conservative pastors, they've been leveraging the astronomical unemployment numbers and economic hardship against Jews. Surprise, surprise. Jews as individuals or as a collective are being accused of spreading the virus or profiting from it. Slightly different, but equally insensitive, I would argue, protesters of the stay-at-home orders in some states are comparing them to Nazi tactics, a real slap in the face for those who survived the Holocaust or lost loved ones and know firsthand what Nazi tactics look like. The Nazis did not try to keep people alive. 
It's precisely what Yair Rosenberg predicted on this show several weeks ago. While it might not be that rampant now, as the consequences of coronavirus become rampant, so will the hatred of Jews. And Alan Kraut, a professor of medical history at American University, reminded me that during the measles outbreak last year that affected some ultra-Orthodox communities, Jews as a collective were accused of avoiding vaccines. The same phenomenon could very well happen again. And where does so much of this hatred bubble and brew? Social media, of course. And where are we spending way more time than usual in order to stay virtually connected in quarantine? Social media, of course. So while staying home does save lives, it amplifies the danger some of us may face afterward. Will we discuss that at the Shabbat table? Well, maybe after the kids go to bed, but we will discuss as a family how to handle this new wave of trouble. As a journalist, as a host of this program, but most importantly, as a mother, it is a topic I do feel strongly about for my children's sake. Sefi, how about you? Well, at some point in the past two months, I learned what PPE is. I haven't spent too much time around hospitals in the past, so I was unfamiliar with the phrase personal protective equipment, the masks and face shields and gloves, etc., that protect the wearer from somehow inhaling or ingesting dangerous microbes, in this case, the coronavirus. I learned the term because, as we are all well aware, many hospitals are running out of this equipment. Because of the shortages, hospitals are doing the rational thing. They are trying to stretch their supplies, with some reports of doctors and nurses being issued one mask and told to make it last for as long as possible rather than disposing after each patient. The rational thing to do, of course, would be to cut down on any unnecessary people being in the hospital in order to keep from having to issue PPE to those people. Doctors and nurses, of course, maintenance staff, sure, sick patients, absolutely, but no visitors. That's the rational thing. Well, what about the moral thing? What do you do when your patients are dying alone? What is your duty to them as they leave this world? What is your duty to their loved ones who will never get to say goodbye? What is the moral thing to do? That's the question that Avi Shushan, the spokesman of Tel Aviv's Ichilov Hospital, put to his bosses. Although in typical Israeli style, he didn't phrase it as a question. Quote, this is the moral thing. Nobody needs to die alone. I don't understand the logic of this. End quote. That's what Avi Shushan said as he made the case that patients dying of COVID-19 should be allowed visitors who can come briefly to say goodbye. Dr. Roni Gamzu, the chief executive of the hospital, said, we're putting all our energy into medical issues and too little into loneliness and compassionate care. In making this shift, Ichilov inspired other Israeli hospitals, and now Israel is bucking the global trend, investing PPE into doing the moral thing. And as it turns out, it's not even that irrational. What the doctors at Ichilov found was that since the decision, less than 1% of PPE used was for visitors. As Dr. Gamzu put it, quote, you don't want to invest 1% for being human? Israel's Holocaust Memorial Day, Yom HaShoah, was this week. The Holocaust was a brutal, murderous tragedy inflicted on the Jews, not some moral lesson for the world to learn. But there are lessons that we can learn from the Holocaust. And one of them is, when you have the choice, you should do the moral thing. And that's what I'll be talking about at my Shabbat table this week. 
Shabbat shalom, everyone. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 